You're listening to the Kingdom Project Podcast. These are discussions on biblical theology and interpretation. The emphasis is on context and grace. The goal is to promote biblical literacy by displacing and debunking most modern interpretations. The challenge is to engage in healthy conversation that may stretch but sharpen iron. This is The Kingdom Project, and I'm your host, Marcus Hall. Back in the Hebrews, <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 9. Alright, so sort of going back two weeks ago to explain that new, more of the new covenant, you know, and was talking about Christ being seated, the seated Christ, because he could sit down as the priest because his work was finished, right? It is done, it's complete. So we're going to look at the great contrast today. And Hebrews, like I said, is a great, great book in the Bible to explain old versus new, Christ being superior over the old, and we'll see the great contrast. Now, um, at the beginning of, of 9, you see all the old, all right? So nine, chapters 1 through 10 are dealing with the types and shadows it's the, the curtain, the second curtain, the section, the most holy place, uh, the holy of holies, the, the priest, the high priest, and all these duties and all this stuff. And then we get to verse 11. And 11 is through the blood of Christ, him as a high priest. It's the great contrast. Okay, so, so 1 through 10, old covenant. And then on, then from there, new, because Jesus Christ is superior. So we're going to start in 9, and I'll, I'll highlight those first 10 verses again. But for sake of time, we're looking at 11 through 14 today. Okay, so, uh, but when Christ, okay, this is important. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? All right, there's a lot there, right? It's contrasting so many things. The priest entering the more perfect tabernacle and the holy places, the blood, uh, purification, and purifying of our conscience even. Okay, so for context then, we're looking at this greater, this great contrast, okay? 
At the beginning, in chapter 9, the writer of Hebrews began by reminding the readers that the Old Covenant had a worldly sanctuary with ordinances of divine services. All right? Then he expounds upon this worldly sanctuary. And in the wilderness, the wilderness tabernacle and all of its furnishings and all of this stuff, he, he writes on all this on the sides of the gold, the golden urn, holding the manna, Aaron's staff, all of these things, okay, and the tablets of the covenant. This is typical and it's illustrative, but it's also types, okay? They all pointed to Jesus. Then he expounds upon the ordinances of divine service, okay? He gives the priest's function. He talks about the function of the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And then he tells us that this was all a parable to teach us about God's holiness and our sinfulness. Then he tells us all those physical things were temporary, all right? We go up to nine, I believe. Well, eight. Oh, and it's so important to read this. Not chapter eight, verse eight of chapter nine. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places, yeah, or is that right? Yeah, into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age, right? According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, right? It only deals with food and drink and various washings and all this stuff. Do you guys understand this part here? That's so like, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. Right? You know how I'm always talking about the transitional period, the second exodus, this 40 year time period from Christ to 70 AD, right? To when, when Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed. Right? We would think this new covenant then is fully operational, but here he says the Holy Spirit indicates the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as that first section is still standing. The first section is still standing, right? I, we could do a whole sermon on that, but, <laughs> but he's saying at the very end of 10, all right? It says, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. All right. So he's saying all this stuff, this were physical things. They're temporary. All right. For the time then present until the time of reformation, until the new covenant arrived in its fullness. Okay. So we have, we have to notice then how it goes, then how the section 11 starts with the word but right the great contrast is introduced with the significant words but but christ right so we miss the significance of that in this the whole word drama if you will here then we're going to deprive ourselves of a very important significant theological truth here as well as the encouragement and the comfort that it brings in the rest of the text the point of the passage is to show the superiority of the Lord Jesus to the old covenant system. All right. The writer basically, you could paraphrase to saying, why would you want to go back to an inferior type when you have the reality? All right. Types and shadows. Jesus is the substance. Okay. 
why am I going on this for the last, you know, for, you know, why do I want people? We don't get it. We don't understand the significance of the different covenants. Like reading the Bible isn't just reading the story of God trying to redeem man. It's uh, God's relational covenants that he has with humanity as well. And through those other things take place. Okay. So there'll be more of that to come, I think, but, um, we have to understand the covenants. If we don't, we see it all meshed together and we mix. That's why we get a mixture of law and grace or law and gospel, right? That's why there's legalism and things like that. Uh, that's why then we think then we have to do things according to our works because we're going to be judged upon those things. That's why we addressed it last week, you know? Like we're always, we have a mixture and Jesus is superior to all of the stuff. And so if you, it's great to understand the Old Testament. You need to read the Old Testament. You need to understand it. You need to know what's going on because it's all pointing towards Jesus. All right. But if you live in the Old Testament, if you live in the old the part of it, which is the Old Covenant, and then you bring it into the new and you mix it together, and then you have a real problem. All right. So you have a lot of burden stuff. You have a lot of legalism. You have a lot of confusion. You have people that are not free because they're they're bound in a mixture. So it's very important to me to, to, along with your identity in Christ, to try to explain to you a lot of the stuff needs to be rightly divided. All right, it's there's there's nothing wrong with the law of God. It's holy. It's always been holy. It's been it's righteous because it was God's law. Thing is, we're not under it. We're in the law of Christ in the new covenant which places us in Christ, okay? It's a big difference. All right, so Christ, we know, is the Messiah, and it means the anointed, right? Our text goes on to say that, but Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, all right? So that means he, he become alongside. He arrived upon the scene under the name of Christ or anointed. One had been promised to Israel, right, for many centuries. Now he had arrived. So in verses 1 through 10, we had the shadow. Now we get to 11 and on, we have the reality. But Christ arrived or appeared, right? The whole situation has become altered. The imagery in these verses is, is that of the day of atonement, all right? So the greater or the more perfect tent or tabernacle is where we see the first contrast. There's two tabernacles, the earthly one at the beginning of this chapter and the perfect one in verse 11. So what is the greater and more perfect tabernacle? All right, now back in chapter 8, it says it calls it the true tabernacle. Now, some say it's a reference to Christ's physical body. Um, but here, here it says... Uh, the greater, more perfect tent, and then in parentheses, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. So, if it's not of this creation, then it's gonna, that's confusing if it's Christ's body, his physical body. The tabernacle in which our Lord serves doesn't belong to a natural creation, it says, or the material universe. So, if, if it is talking about his physical body, then... That's going to cause problems. We'll have to appear to call in the question his the hum humanity, right? And we know he was human. 
He was incarnated, 100% man, 100% God, and it's strongly asserted of his humanity in chapter 2 of Hebrews. So I don't think it refers to the physical body of Jesus. It's talking to about heaven and the new covenant that Jesus has brought. All right. Later in Hebrews 9, chapter or verse 24, it says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, okay? So Jesus entered the true Holy of Holies, which is heaven, is the dwelling place of God. Heaven's the throne room. This is the dwelling place of the Father. The tabernacle or the tent was but a type to teach us about the true place. So compared with this greater, this more perfect tent, Right, All the stuff that was in the, the earthly one, the gold, the silver, uh, all that stuff, those are just nothing compared to the true perfect tent in its heaven and throne room. All right, That was nothing. Types and shadows. So Jesus Christ ministers for us in heaven, in the throne room of God, right? At God's right hand, because why? He's seated there, right? He's seated. His work has been accomplished. It's done. It's complete. And... We are invited then to come to this throne to receive help to meet our needs. The second contrast then is between the blood of the old covenant and the blood of Jesus Christ. Now in 12, it says um, he he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. By his own blood is clearly different than from the Levitical priest who used the blood of bulls and goats, right? Christ made a personal sacrifice of himself with his own blood, and that word own is personal. It's private, unique ownership. Jesus was the priest. Jesus was the sacrifice. By his own blood, he entered, all right? He entered once for all. It's referring to a sacrificial death. Christ entered in once for all. Jesus never needed to offer another sacrifice because his death fulfilled everything. So this is in direct contrast to the activity of the high priest and the priest of the old covenant, all right? Now, if you know anything about how all that operated, right? The high priest of the old covenant had to enter the earthly holy of holies once per year to offer sacrifices for the sins of people. But Jesus only has to enter once, it says, because his work is eternally uh, complete. It secured eternal redemption, it says. Therefore, he obtained that for us. Okay. now. The word redemption, we know, is to redeem. So Jesus Christ, by his sacrifice on the cross, paid for our liberation by his blood. He paid for sin, the sin debt. He died for us. All right. The sinner, having placed his faith in Christ, is liberated then forever Okay, from sin's penalty. When Jesus Christ died, we died with him. We've talked about that before. Romans 6.3 says, do you, not, uh, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in 
to Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. When he died, we died. Our redemption is eternal. We are redeemed for time and all of eternity. We can never be lost. That phrase, um, eternal redemption, the, the securing and eternal redemption, it indicates a completed action, all right? That's, again, why he is seated. Christ paid uh, what he... <laughs> You know, some say paid, others say uh, there's all sorts of atonement theories and all that. But the point is, he went to the cross, he suffered, he died, he raised again. But he did this all with his blood, with his death, and it is finished. This is the reason why he's entered God's presence once for all. That Jesus, by his outpoured blood, procured for man, for humanity, not a a probation, okay? Not a probation, but a salvation that results in everlasting life. All right? So you're not just on probation here. This is eternal. This is salvation. It's complete, full, eternally secure. All right? So then it goes to talk about, for if the blood of goats and bulls, so there's repeating from the last couple of sermons, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the pure purification of the flesh right now sanctify we talked about sanctification or to be sanctified it's set apart all right that's what it means to be set apart of god all right so those old testament sacrifices had did have a result and it says they purified the flesh but it was only temporary it was temporary it was external and it was ceremonial cleansing okay so basically think of it this way Besides the once a year thing, there was always sacrifices going on. So I have to travel and I go and I finally, I take my animal or whatever. I get it to the priest. They do all their stuff. And there was like the intense ways of cutting and gutting and doing all these things and saving certain things and all this stuff. I know it's very vicious, (laughs) but it was, there was a certain way to do it and handle it. it had to be done the proper way in which God had commanded. All right. So I because I'm I, you know I got mad at my dad and we had a fight so I haven't honored my dad so I have to give the sacrifice and all that and my dad's in the back going all right good <laughs> right and, and I, now I've been cleansed it's all external it's good he's good with me we walk a mile back you know we still got a long way to walk and now we get in a fight now I've dishonored again him again so now I got to find another animal because I'm now I'm messed up again right you know what I mean. You know, so like last week, am I good or am I not good? Am I in or is God looking at me? Is God turned his you know, back on me? I mean, that's a great example, though, of the old covenant, because as soon as I leave from the sacrifice, I'm going to do something again. And now I just got, do I ever have time to go home and do anything? No, probably not. <laughs> I know it's overdramatized. I think you get the point, though, is what I'm saying. You know, it's like a mile into our 40. 40 day walk back home i'm gonna make dad mad i dishonor him so now i gotta find another animal to be killed to go sacrifice again it's just never ending it's external it's not permanent you know all the time all this blood all these animals i said it before if there was nothing different in the new covenant then the only thing that jesus saved was the animals (laughs) right because there was a lot being killed. All right, so all of that, the Old Testament or Old Covenant sacrifices, temporary, external, it was ceremonial cleansing. Okay, so the, the, the writer uses two instances of the Old Testament worship system as 
examples. The, the blood of goats and bulls. This is referring to the Day of Atonement. You can find that in Leviticus 16. And then the ashes of a heifer. This comes from Numbers 19. Okay, So the sprinkling with the ashes of a heifer was prescribed for the ceremonial cleansing of any person who had been in contact with the dead body. These ashes were used in the preparation of um, what is known as water for impurity, which was water to be ritually employed for the sprinkling of persons and objects contaminated through association with the dead body. And then there was all sorts of other things, you know, but we sprinkle it with ashes. Get sprinkled with blood too, right? Animal blood. You guys wouldn't like that, I don't think. <laughs> I wouldn't like it either. <laughs> That's a little too metal for me. Um, all right, so the typology of a red heifer is generally agreed upon that it's, unble- it, that it's unblemished condition symbolized the sinlessness of Christ, okay? The sacrificial ritual of purification, the cleansing um, affected by the blood of Christ then, and it's offering outside of the camp, right? This is the suffering of Christ outside of the gate, okay? Because he was sacrificed outside the city, right? So the offer, the author doesn't pause or anything to mention the significance of any of this here. But he's what he's concerned about is to emphasize that at this point is that the ritual sprinkling of defiled persons, whether with blood or of that water of impurity, affected no more than just the purification of flesh, which is contrasted with the purging of the conscious that's affected. Through the blood of Christ. Okay? There you only got purified externally, purified of the flesh. Christ takes care of the conscious too, right? And it says, purify our conscious from dead works. So if the blood of these animals serve for cleansing of persons defiled in the external sense, okay? It was all external. How much more than should the blood of Christ achieve the radical inward cleansing of the conscious? Okay, if the shadow purifies the flesh, if the shadow purifies the external, how much more does the truth purify the inside, the internal, which is the next part of the text uh, here, the finishing? Like, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve to serve the living God. So it says that it says of Christ that he he offered himself. <laughs> so it, it was his own doing. There's different translations and stuff, too, but I'm just going to make sure that's there. How much more of the blood? Yeah. But it does say, who offered himself. Yeah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish. Christ offered himself in his own doing and the work with the Father. And in this free voluntary act of the self-offering, he fulfilled the purpose of his coming into the world. Right? It's a big contrast between the death of animals and the death of God. Right? God the Father, God the Son, make this. God the Son dies here, right? Big contrast. All right, the death of Christ, the eternal Son. Okay, one is the animals, a non-moral creature. The other, 
the creator, right? One is brought by another and is sacrificed. Christ came on his own, right? He said nobody could take his life from him, right? He'd give it up by his own will. He's the one who does this. And his blood is said to cleanse our conscience, right? The conscience, we know this is man's inner knowledge of himself, especially in the sense of answering and his motives and his actions and what he's done in the view of the fact that he is, as a creature, is usually going to be fearful of having to give account to God for his life. But by faith in Jesus Christ, it says we are justified. We are righteous before the Father. And Christ cleansed our works from dead works. And in context here, right, that could naturally be taken to the ritualistic ordinances that was operating under the Old Covenant. These were just all these works. They are dead works now. Now, um, going back up, and I read earlier that, that stuff in 9 and 10, of chapter 9 according to this arrangement gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot per- perfect the conscience of the worshiper and they only they deal only with food and drink and various washings regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation okay they were imposed all right <laughs> imposed only until the time of reformation the full establishment of the new covenant when the temple and the city of Jerusalem were going to be destroyed in 70 AD. It's all dead works now. The purged conscience of the new covenant people, we don't need these things. We no longer need this system. We have Christ. The effect of this purging should be, uh, be a priestly service of our own to serve the living God. Which it says... Uh, at the end of 14, to serve the living God. Service to God is often translated worship and suggesting that all labor for Christ is sacred. Worship is service and service is worship. All right. In Philippians 3, 3, it says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Right? This, this is a description of a believer. This is a description of you. All right? And notice that it's, it has nothing to say about any outward type of conduct. It doesn't say that we know we are Christians because of what we do or what we don't do. Because being a Christian has to do with internal things, with the heart. Okay? Paul says that the true Christian worships God in the Spirit. All right. The best texts have worship by the Spirit of God. In other words, it's not outward ceremony, but inward faith. It's produced by the Holy Spirit, and it's the Spirit-empowered worship then, and that's what, uh, what is important about it altogether, right? Legal worship consisted in the outward act and was restricted to certain ta- times, certain places, they, they were special days and special places to worship. Now, I want to take an instance to look um, at this one part in, in Matthew 15. It says, Matthew 15, 8 and 9, it says, This people honors me with their lips, but their, but their heart is far from me. 
In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. All right. So they were attempting to worship, but their worship is in vain because it was not coming from their hearts. It was all outward ceremony. But to the true Christian in Christ, worship is spiritual. It's not, an iso- it's not isolated to just certain acts or times of service, but it embraces the whole life. True worship marks the true circumcision, enabling us to serve the living God. So in Jesus, uh, uh, G- Jesus told the woman at the well that the hour is coming when you will neither uh, on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Because the Jews only had one and one only place or center of worship, the navel of the earth and the temple and the Holy of Holies. Jesus is saying that soon it won't matter where you worship. In the new covenant, worship is not restricted to a certain place. It's not restricted to a certain time. When Jesus said the hour is coming, right? Some say he's referring to Pentecost. That's definitely in view there. Um, Once Pentecost came, worship was no longer restricted to a temple. But I think more specifically, again, we're looking at destruction of the temple that happened in, in 70 AD. All right. That put an end to the old covenant completely and its fleshly worship. So from 70 AD to now, the Jews have not sacrificed animals. The old covenant and Judaism, uh, real Judaism has been brought to an end. And this transition period uh, between the two covenants was over. The old was now gone. All right. So John 4, 22, it says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. So anybody who wanted to get in on knowing God before in the old and what's being contrasted, right? They they had to come through the Jews, through Judaism. They, they, they alone had the covenant. They had the promises. They had the word of God. Salvation came out of them, through them, because of Judaism. Worship is to be done according to truth, though, we know. And the Jews, though, at that time, they had the truth, right? But it goes on for... Uh, 23 and 24 it says but the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him god is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth okay so god you see i know that it may sound like this is all sort of disconnected there but it's all still connecting with the superiority of jesus and what he has done for us in the new covenant god has saved us that we would be a worshiping people but for worship to be done properly it's done in the spirit and it's done in truth right if you're ever going to worship god you have to know who he is you have to understand what he's done right if you're ever going to know uh, all of that, then you're going to have to learn from Scripture, right? Our worship is spiritual because it comes from Him then too, and knowing Him, and it comes from the heart and is done anywhere and everywhere at any time of the day, right? So Christ's work is contrasted with that of the old covenant, and we see that superiority of Jesus Christ and His work. Christ, as high priest, has entered the true tabernacle, which is heaven. And he entered it by his own blood and his sacrificial death. 
So in this new covenant, God no longer writes his will on tablets of stone outside of the heart, right? He moves by his spirit inside and makes the will of God part of what we love. He changes this from the inside out so that we love his will, right? Not only that, it says that in the new covenant, he is merciful to our transgressions and he remembers our sins no more. In the old covenant, there had... uh, there had been no, no in the uh, sorry I messed up in the old covenant there had been no sacrifice that could truly take away human sin never right never it could never take it away there were animal sacrifices Hebrews ten four says plainly it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin so the new covenant promises that the sins will be taken away which means that the foundation of the new covenant is a better sacrifice. Right? It's the sacrifice of God's own son. So it's all about how God deals with sin to make us right with him. How he deals with the guilt and condemnation of sin by sending a son to die for sinners. Take our guilt so that there could be forgiveness and cleansing and good consciences consciences before the father, before God. That's the new covenant. That's Christianity. And the death of Christ, the shedding of his blood, is the basis for it all. And by his blood shedding, he purchased our justification, our sanctification. He's uh, purchased it all and he's taken our guilt and, um, and our corruption and it's gone. It's gone. <laughs> we have been purified, not just externally, but internally. That's why we are new creations when we are born again. Okay. Seems like a lot. (laughs) Any questions? Any comments? Any disagreements or concerns? Salvation, yeah, salvation and eternal life. You know, and it's not about getting to heaven. You know, it's about having relationship with Him now, and knowing Him more, and growing in maturity in in our relationship with Him, like. Eternal life is is the free gift, you know, but we have a lot of time before we get to get to heaven. Hopefully I do, but (laughs) hopefully I've got a lot more time. But yeah, it's for us. It's all for us. God wanted man to (laughs) to come and worship him and, and be in relationship with him. The only way to do it was to have the perfect sacrifice, the perfect plan. So God and God make a covenant together. That only he could fulfill, only he could meet the the uh, the conditions to, and take care of it once for all. It's not like here's a covenant that I'm giving you guys that you guys have to fulfill these things for you to enter in. We're not in covenant with with God. We we are in covenant with God through Christ because we're in Him, and that's sort of my other point on teaching covenant too. Anything else?